we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. This is She's On Call, a weekly show hosted by ENT specialist Dr. Sajana Chandrasekhar and general surgeon Dr. Marina Kurian. They'll be joined by guest experts to discuss an array of newsworthy medical and health issues. You're invited to ask the doctors anything. The physicians and their guests' views are their own and do not represent any institution. Please contact your doctor for any personal questions. Please hit share and join us live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at She's On Call. Hashtag She's On Call. Please welcome our hosts. Hello, I'm Dr. Sujana Chandrasekhar. I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon with practices in Midtown Manhattan and Wayne, New Jersey. I'm Marina Curry, and I'm a general surgeon and a minimally invasive surgeon here in New York City. We have an amazing show lined up today. So happy Pride Month, Marina. Thank you. And to everybody out there, I think it's uh, very important to, you know, celebrate uh, every aspect of humanity. So and, and, and celebrate each other. So I think it's wonderful. So we have three great guests coming up. We have Dr. Chase Anderson, Dr. Michael O'Brien, and Dr. Reardon Ledgerwood. And they are each... Uh, child uh, and adolescent psychiatry trainees and pediatric trainee um, in various parts of this country. And they will be talking to us both about LGBTQ health and about uh, adolescent health, which I think um, all of these things are really important subjects that we're really uh, interested in knowing about. Right. And we're also going to talk about their uh, adolescent health as well, because we have uh, two pediatric trainees with us as well. You know, this is our uh, almost our one year anniversary of starting the show. We took a couple of breaks, but this is show number 46. Yes. Very exciting. Happy anniversary, Marina. I couldn't think of a better person to have spent this past year with. uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, Marina and I finally saw each other in person only in the last couple of months after years of not seeing each other and certainly this past year of only seeing each other on this uh, little screen. Um, We've had 91 guests We've had 109,771 views, and we've covered just about the breadth of medicine with lots of emphasis on providing accurate and useful information on COVID and other topics. Absolutely. And you guys know that we still have also given you a lot of information on COVID and other aspects of what's happening around the world. And so we're going to do that again this time because we do have some good news and bad news on the COVID front in the US, we're um, doing very well. And in other parts of the uh, world, actually, it's not so good. Yeah, so we, you know, uh, over 50% of uh, eligible people in the United States have received 
a complete series of vaccinations, whether it's two for Moderna and Pfizer or one for J&J. Um, the goal is 70% by Independence Day, by July 4th. Uh, we're seeing a significant uptick in uh, kids uh, 12 and up who were approved by emergency use authorization. Um, and concomitantly, we're seeing a significant reduction in cases and in deaths in the US and in the UK. So we're seeing um, cases below 20,000 per day uh, for several weeks in a row, which we have not seen since before the pandemic. And we're seeing deaths of under 500 a day. Um, but unfortunately, uh, we all live on this planet and the rest of the planet is not faring so well. Right, so in India, unfortunately, there are um, 2.1 million total cases. And this slide just showing you different parts of uh, India and where the peaks are. Delhi's really been hit the worst, but it's it looks like everybody is still on the rise. There was some hope for a while that we were seeing some decreasing cases in India, but unfortunately, that's not the case. And they are still having problems with lack of oxygen, lack of ventilators, and um, and and getting vaccines into arms there. So they're are currently 3.6 million active cases and um, over 230,000 official deaths. So this is um, really just a, a tragedy of epic proportions. And it's something that they're expecting also to happen in Africa. Right, it's actually 2.1 crore, which, you know, oh, right. who knows what is a crore, but that's <laughs> 10 million, so it's 21 million cases. Um, right. Yeah, there's lakhs and crores in India, which I have to tell you, every time I go back for summer vacation, I'm like, I don't even know what numbers you guys use because I don't, I can't understand. Um, but unfortunately, we're also seeing, as Marina said, uh, we are anticipating a huge third wave in Africa. Less than 1% of Sub-Saharan Africa is actually vaccinated. And again, the medical resources are going to be stretched um, beyond uh, their capabilities. Even in South America, we're seeing an enormous increase in cases. Uh, they're anticipating a million total deaths from COVID in Brazil by the end of this month, June 2021. Um, and we're seeing that the variants there are affecting uh, an enormous number of the countries in South America. So this is really affecting the entire world. And even if we are in places or countries where we are doing better, um, it is really important that we know this and we do what we can uh, to curb this uh, crisis around the world. So Marina, we've been talking about these variants with these very long, complicated names. Right. So the World Health Organization did something about this. They absolutely did. They decided, and it actually makes sense, right, to not name it uh, this country variant and, and this city variant. So they're actually going to the Greek system, which is, which is funny because you know, Sujana, actually, you know, Alpha, Alpha, Beta, uh, you, you, what did you say? You were like, this is why I should have joined a sorority in college. I have no idea how to, how to say the alphabet in Greek. Well, they're naming them. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And in that way, it destigmatizes um, the source of the variants, because it's not like anybody could really control 
uh, where the variants are showing up. And so half the time it's where they showed up and were identified, right? That's what they're calling the Brazil variant or the UK variant. But honestly, who knows? You know, right. it actually started in those countries. So this is a good way to, I think, deal with it. Yeah, and there, and it's, and we will learn the Greek alphabet, which I think is a, a byproduct of this. But um, it really does help us to be able to say, you know, the beta variant, the, the gamma variant, the delta variant, and the WHO is categorizing it as variants of concern that are really causing aggressive disease and variants of interest where we're just seeing a variant and we're not sure how it's going to act. So I think this um, brings it back to a realm of scientific understanding that's very important. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, we are going to get to our show, though, shortly, but we have a corporate sponsor. We want to thank our corporate sponsor, which is ENT and Allergy Associates, LLP. They have over 40 offices in the NYC, Long Island, Westchester, and New Jersey area. They offer same-day access to safe, high-quality ENT and allergy care, and you can go on their website to schedule, which is so easy now, and you can often get a same-day appointment. Thank you, ENT and Allergy Associates, and... Uh, you know, my entire family goes there. So, well, thank you. And I work there. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, we are live on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and on Shree's scroll uh, LinkedIn and on scroll.in. And one of our viewers said one uh, crore is 10 million. That is correct. Um, Margaret Ambrosino says, Good morning and happy Pride Month. Mana Hirani says happy Pride Month. Um, and now we are ready to introduce our wonderful guest. So welcome aboard Dr. Chase Anderson. He is a child and adolescent psychiatry fellow at UCSF. Dr. Reardon Ledgerwood, they are a senior pediatric resident in uh, Washington, D.C. And Dr. Michael O'Brien, he is an incoming child and adolescent uh, ped psych resident at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, uh, Massachusetts. So welcome aboard, Chase and Michael and Reardon. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, we're so yeah. happy you're here. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Um, uh, let us know how you're doing. I, this was a very strange year to be in medical school or in training. So let's talk to you. Let's start with Chase. How how were how was it this year for you uh, in San Francisco? Yeah, excellent question. So I actually matched right before the pandemic really started. So I was in Boston at the time, and then I moved in the middle of the pandemic. So June of 2020 is when I moved to San Francisco. Um, everything was boarded up, but like it was nice to actually get a chance to explore and it was quiet. Um, but my co-fellows and I had actually started a group text too, which was really cool. So we actually like kept in contact and then met in person, socially distanced. But some of the kids that I work with, I haven't seen in person and I don't know if I ever will. So there's been like pluses and minuses, but that's what it's been like for me. Well, it's been intriguing, right? The rise of telehealth and how how originally a lot of our um, psych psychology and psychiatry counterparts were like, no, we need to see the person, watch their like, you know, how they're moving, how they're holding themselves, you know, um, you can't see uh, them, me picking at my, I don't actually pick up my fingers, just so you know, <laughs> you can't see any of that because I'm like this, you know, and talking to someone. So it has made such an interesting um, change in, in everybody's trajectory 
and actually, you know, the, uh, so many medical societies are recommending that we keep telehealth and that insurance continues to pay for it because it has been so helpful and available because everyone has a smartphone just about or they have a desktop. And, you know, I've seen so many patients on their lunch hour or they go into the closet. They're like, I'm in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> In a different way than Pride Month. Yeah, like not in a closet in a way that's okay. And like not when we need to like help them. With right. <laughs> uh, um, Michael, um, I think you went to medical school in the South, right? So how was, how was finishing up your med school? Um, a little different than the Northeast in San Francisco, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely very different. I think I was ready for a change of pace. Um, but I had a great experience. I went to University of South Carolina in, in Greenville for medical school and finishing out my fourth year during COVID had its pluses and minuses for sure. Um, like Marina was saying, um, it's great that a lot of people got to have incredible um, telehealth experience, which is something that you probably wouldn't typically get a lot of um, as a medical student. But then on the other hand, um, every doctor knows like matching into residency is very stressful. And then usually it's um, you're flying all over the country and bring all these different places. But for us, it was all virtual. Um, so we had to make our rank lists and choose where we're going to spend the next three to five years of our life without ever seeing the place in person. Wow. And that is such a difference. And, and it, that also can be stressful. Even last year when the fellows, my residents were applying for fellowships, they're like, don't you think that we should, I mean, like, it's terrible. I feel like they should really meet me in person. And I was like, oh, I think it's going to have to work out. Like, it, and it'll be what it is, you know? And um, a lot of the programs were doing clever things by doing videos of their, um, of their hospitals and, mm -hmm. and you know, what rounds would look like and things like that so that you could see the facility as well. Yeah, people got really creative. And I think it'll be interesting to see moving forward, um, what the larger organizations like the um, APA and like the big organizations for each residency and each specialty decides, are we going to keep doing virtual? Are we going to go back to in-person? I think those decisions are coming out right now. So it'll be interesting to see. You know, um, Reardon, you're completing your pediatric training before um, before starting life as a full-fledged pediatrician in, in Texas, right? So. Um, I know some of it is inpatient and some of it is outpatient. So how did you navigate um, the pandemic in your practice to make sure that you learned enough that, you know, on day one, if somebody brings their kid to you, you know, that's going to be good. I mean, I have to say it was exceedingly challenging, right? Because as, you know, as an entire world, we were figuring things out as we went and, I was actually inpatient um, last year in March when things were kind of coming to a head. And it seemed like the guidance changed every single day, almost every hour. And so it's like, are we wearing masks? What sort of masks are we wearing? And in what rooms are we treating everyone like they may have COVID, only certain people who may or may not have the symptoms. And so it was it was just like always keeping on my toes. And then parents, of course, are worried about their kids. It's like, well, how is COVID going to affect, you know, going to affect my kid? And we are, didn't really have that information at the time. And so trying to balance that with what we did know and sort of as things evolved, we, you know, we adjusted. But it was very challenging to try and 
take something that we didn't know very much about and try and reassure parents when even we didn't, you know, have like as much information as we wanted to. So definitely um, an adjustment day by day, hour by hour. Yeah, that's that sounds like the story of the pandemic, right? We're like, uh, whatever was true yesterday is not true this afternoon and won't be true tomorrow morning, right? Um, let's uh, let's pivot a little bit to. Um, the LGBTQ community and to healthcare in the LGBTQ community. Um, it is Pride Month. Um, it is a, a month where we particularly pay attention to this, but frankly, as physicians and as people, if we are not paying attention to, as Marina said, respecting all people 365, something's wrong. So um, it's certainly just a time to honor um, the differences and the similarities between us. Uh, I'm gonna go back to Chase. Let's talk a little bit about statistics. Um, and and I wanna, you know, I wanna say I pulled up some information from Gallup and from Yale University. Um, and in the US, about 6% of people identify as LGBT. Um, of these, 36% are gay men, 29% are bisexual women, 19% are lesbian women, 11% are bisexual men, and 6% are transgender. But interestingly, um, about a third of Americans and actually 50% of younger Americans know someone personally who's transgender. So can you talk to us a, a bit about these statistics and can you tell us when people become aware of their own true identity? Yeah, um, I think sometimes it's an evolving process. So that's one of the things to think about too. But actually there are some studies that show that LGBT kids actually know their sexuality and sexual orientation earlier than their straight counterparts. The reason for that is that they like see things in society and they actually have to figure out things a little bit more quickly. So in terms of the statistics that you were mentioning, a lot of people know somebody who's LGBTQ plus. Like I think one of the things to think about is, you know, when those polls are done and when those surveys are done, are those people open in their actual lives right now? Or are they able to talk about like who they are and things like that? But a lot of people know somebody who's gay, who's LGBTQ+. So just thinking about like, it could be your family member, it could be your kid, it could be your grandparent or things like that. Um, so people very much know who they are and LGBTQ plus people figure that out earlier. So just thinking about like, how do we provide safe spaces for them to be out when they need to be and like creating those safe spaces? I hope that answers the question a little bit. It really does. We just had a, a viewer write in that they knew that they were non-binary uh, from, I think they said uh, from infancy, you know? So I, I'm a non-binary born female. I knew I was different from the first day I was conscious, right? Very interesting. I think um, I went to get a, a birthday cake for my son yesterday. And I went to the bakery, this old Italian bakery that I go to. And I said, Oh, can you write, you know, happy birthday. And I gave his name. And it's a it's a non common name. So I said, he's a boy. And I said, not that that makes a difference. And it was very funny with this Italian baker person. We had this whole conversation about gender norming and and it didn't really matter. And uh, it was it was hysterical. Actually, it was a very fun conversation in a bakery that I didn't expect to have. But I think um, the you know we did we looked at some statistics and you're right. I uh, it seems like 
Um, it's a very young age, between 10 and 12, yeah. where people are aware, first aware that they are not, I, I actually hate the word straight because the opposite of straight is crooked. And then I'm like, well, how come you guys get to be gay? Do I have to be sad? Like, it's a, just a funny <laughs> naming, right? So, yeah. but I think um, it's really interesting that the median age for uh, people knowing was between 10 and 12. And um, the data says that the coming out experience when you thought you knew, when you knew you knew, and when you told someone is um, about 10 to 12, and then about 15 to 18, and then you're telling somebody between 18 and 20. And unfortunately, you're not telling your parents about um, almost uh, 30, 40% of the time, yeah. which I think is really sad. As Marina and I you know, came of age in medicine in the 80s and 90s in the AIDS era, and it was so sad then, and I can't believe that's still true now. So maybe Michael, I'll ask you to speak to that. Yeah, no, it's definitely a really big issue and it's a larger societal issue and what people see growing up and what's around them. Um, I think coming from the South, one thing that is really interesting to me is to see these statistics that you had up and how it looks like um, if you're looking from the outside of our community, say, okay, there are more and more people becoming, in quotes, um, LGBTQ over time. Um, but I think what's really happening is society has slowly become more and more accepting and people are able to embrace their actual identity and more people are openly identifying with um, their own true inner identity. So I don't really think um, people will talk about um, LGBTQ becoming a, a trend. Um, and I think that's just so inaccurate because I, I really think it's just we have this movement of liberation and people are able to be who they are over time, which is why we have so many people in um, millennial and then even now even more in Gen Z who are coming out. Yeah. How, you know, how did you have this conversation with your family? Um, and, uh, and, and obviously, you know, we want to hear each of your experiences, but, and, and unfortunately sometimes, uh, and, and for many people around the country, around the world, those coming out experiences have been dreadful, right? And and hopefully all of yours were positive. Um, I remember when my when my children were small and I was like, well, it's okay with me if they are. And, you know, um, and, and, and with their father, right? It was just, we want our kids to be happy. We want to support them. And, you know, I had kids and, you know, people talk about the, the um, I forget what the term is, Siji, when you're like, when it, it's the, um, not, it's not self-flattery for having children, right? but I had kids because I thought their dad would be a great dad, you know, and I, and I thought this was the next thing to do. But then once you have those children, you're just constantly like, you're protecting them in the beginning, but then other times just trying to hold them up. And so mm -hmm. for me, there was no choice but to support them in whatever, you know, behavior, um, uh, their, their pursuits, which is funny because both my kids want to go into medicine. I've been telling them they can't go into medicine. So that's the only time I've been <laughs> of your beliefs and pushing you forward. Um, but otherwise I think that that's why we have. So can we, um, like Chase, perhaps talk a little bit about how, how your experience was it with it and, and what you've done with perhaps even kids that you've been 
talking to you about how to approach it? Yeah, um, so my coming out experience was not the greatest in some ways. Um, some issues at home, but it took time and conversations and like now everything's fine. So sometimes it takes time. And I think the other thing is that at school, I went to like private Catholic schools um, and I was a black gay male. So that came with some nuances um, and some discrimination that happened. But I've been very fortunate um, in a lot of ways to get where I am and to have the privileges that I have. So that shielded me from some things. Um, and then I got to college at MIT and that was life-changing. Um, the friends there saved my life. And I talk about it a little bit on Twitter and things like that, but those friends really showed me that I could be who I wanted to be. Um, so that's why I'm here today with like dyed hair and the way it is and things like that. Um, <laughs> I think what I've seen too, as time has gone on, is that people, like Michael was saying really eloquently, is that people have become more accepting and more open. So when I work with kids now, some of them come to like me in psychiatry and they're already out, but then I have other kids who are like, hey, like you're a gay doctor, so like, can we talk about parts of my identity and things like that? And so just seeing me there helps them come out. And then we have discussions with their parents. We talk about like, where are you in your journey? Do you want to share with your parents? How have they been in the past? Have you talked to friends about it? Are you staying safe? Like, are you safe at school and things like that? So providing that safe space for them psychiatrically has been really a gift um, of being a child psychiatrist. And it's been really beautiful to see kids who, I, an example is somebody said something that was homophobic during one of the like kids that I was taking care of in a group setting and all the other kids immediately jumped in. They were like, we're not here for that. Um, so times are changing. It was really great. That, that's wonderful to hear. I think, um, I think there are learned behaviors, uh, unfortunately, that we really, I hope something like this show, something talking about, it's just light, you know, as Marina said, we really do want to support our kids um, in exactly who they are and who they learn who they are, right? Um, there's, you know, we hear a lot about the bullying, we hear a lot about depression and anxiety um, in uh, all adolescents, but certainly uh, as well and and more so in, L in the LGBTQ community. Um, but I'll tell you, uh, my husband and I happened to be at Stonewall the day that uh, Governor Cuomo signed legislation making uh, gay marriage in New York legal. We just happened to be down there actually looking for something to eat. And it was awesome. It was amazing. The amount of happiness down by Stonewall Inn, the, the police hugging the uh, gay and lesbian people, everybody was just happy. Um, and then the other thing that I noted was there were not that many people there. Had this been, um, you know, 85, 89, the place would have been packed. But in fact, uh, gay, lesbian community, bi community, trans community is in all neighborhoods. So not everybody had to live downtown by Stonewall by that point. Like people just live wherever they are as who they are. But society is still um, quite negative, right? Nine, as, as you said, Chase, 92% of LGBT youth say that they hear negative comments about being LGBT. And they could be like schoolyard taunts, things that are, are so unpleasant. Um, they come from school, the internet, their peers. 40% say their community doesn't accept them. Um, so, I, you know, there is still a lot to overcome. There's a term, um, Reardon, 
called gender dysphoria. Can you explain what that term is? And then I, I loved your recent tweet about gender euphoria. Yeah, so essentially what gender dysphoria sort of means is basically in terms of the sex and the hormones that you were born with, something just doesn't quite feel right. And your internal sense of self is different than the sex that you were assigned to at birth and different than the hormones that you ended up with on some level. And it doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, you your sex assigned at birth was female, then you want to be male. Sometimes it means that, but you know, gender is very much a spectrum. And so there are, you can have all sorts of different internal sense of self in terms of where you see yourself as that gender. But if that gender is kind of incongruent or kind of goes against what you were essentially labeled as at birth or the hormones that you're born with, then that's kind of what we call as gender dysphoria. And then sort of conversely, or on the other side of things, when you feel like you are affirmed in your gender and everything is kind of matching in terms of like how other people are sort of seeing you, how you feel and just everything is just really matching up really well, then you can have like these moments of what we call gender euphoria, kind of the opposite of gender dysphoria where you just feel, you know, really great and really affirmed in just who you are. I think, I think that, you know, we, we talk about uh, being comfortable in your own skin, right? And that, and, but now you brought up a good point. It's, it's really in your, in your brain too, in terms of, you know, uh, the hormones and the impulses and, and, and the synaptic responses that we have to everyday life. So um, I think that that's an important uh, distinction about the dysphoria and now euphoria when you do feel, as you say, affirmed. And I, and I said, comfortable in your skin, but you, it's, it's how you want to live and, and be happy, right? We have so many external pressures to, that affect our, our joy, including our jobs and what's going on in the world. And, and, but from a local to a global perspective, at T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams of 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Finding that happiness is so important. Michael, we have uh, wonderful uh, viewers who love to ask us questions, and we're so happy. Radhika Luxman uh, had a question. She's in Kuwait, uh, and she asked about um, the relevancy to specify personal gender pronouns. Michael, can you just sort of address that? We, we did that in the uh, For Your Names, um, but it is important if we can just discuss why. 
I think the, the big thing that's important is that it, it normalizes the use of someone's correct pronouns for everyone. Um, so if we specify our pronouns in a, in a written or visible form or when we introduce ourselves, um, regardless of whether we meet this societal standard of what someone thinks he him should look like in quotes or uh, she her would look like if we just all specify our pronouns then it normalizes it for everyone else um, who doesn't have that ease of um, fitting in with what society says is the standard um, and then when we do that correctly and we treat everybody uh, equally and use the pronouns that affirm people, we help them reach that gender euphoria. Um, so truly to me, um, I've come to see it as just what will eventually be just polite in society. Um, and it's just a kind thing to do for the people around you to make them comfortable. You know, back in the day, I, I know that Marina and I compared to you guys. We have a lot of back in the days. Dinosaurs, right? <laughs> but, but I, I remember to school in the snow. <laughs> all right, twenty-five miles each way. You know, um, but back in the day, I remember admitting um, somebody who was uh, trying to undergo the trans process um, and admitting them for something. And we did not have they them. Like we didn't have that as a pronoun back then. And um, she wanted to be called she, and she gave me a name that she wanted to be called. So I presented her on rounds. I put her in a private room because, um, because of various things, but that was the safest place for her. And, and I introduced her to the team as her uh, in her preference and her name. And, oh, the inability of some of my team members to respect her wishes was really overwhelming. Um, and I think uh, the, the, the uh, change in society of understanding that is really important because until patients know that we respect the entirety of their personhood, how can they trust us to deliver the kind of health care they need? I mean, she might have just had tonsillitis. I don't remember what, what I admitted her for. But, I mean, she needs a team uh, that supports her. So I appreciate um, sort of an honest discussion like this about why these things are important. Because a rose may smell sweet, but the name of a rose is a rose. Um, I want to ask you, Reardon, there's a term called a dead name when people are in the trans process. Can you explain what that means to people? Yeah, so when, I mean, obviously when we're born, we get names from our caregivers and sometimes you know, as we sort of figure out who we are, that name doesn't sort of jive, doesn't fit with, again, that internal sense of self. And so not all trans people, but some trans people will sort of come up with a different name that feels better, that that is more themselves. And so that's the name that they go by and that's their name. And but then, of course, you have this kind of this relic that, that's kind of the what we call like a dead name, the old name that's just kind of in the background. And, you know, you that's the name that you had historically. And so you're going to meet people who have known you by that name historically. 
and sort of putting on the emphasis of it's a dead name. It's the name of a person that I no longer know because that's not who I am. It's probably not who I ever truly was because I'm this person now. This is my name. And that's, again, another like it's a history. It's a relic. And so like putting the emphasis on it being a dead name sort of just separates out those identities of like the past, the relic to who that person is today. You know, it's um, what's interesting is that people do change their names, right? And and um, and it is harder for for when it when it has to do with transgender or becoming who you are. That it's harder for people to let go of their names. And other times, like I, I as you said, um, that about a, a third was it. Such enough people know someone. I do know someone who's um, going through the process as transgender. Actually, know many people. But um, it's hard when you've known someone for their entire life as, as one name. So every once in a while, I, you know, I would slip them, I'm sorry, and, and give the actual name, you know, because it's, it's, it's a hard thing. It's not because I'm against it. Uh, it's just, it is like a habit, but it's, it's a good way to say that, you know, that is not who I am now. We have, um, you know, we, we Suj and I have so many questions for you guys. And, and one of them has to do with uh, what's happening with adolescents during COVID right now. We kind of shift gears a little bit to that. And that the rates of anxiety, depression, and, and suicide are so high amongst adolescents. And this is very similar from what we're seeing in the U.S. and the U.K. And so, um, Chase, can you talk to us a little bit about what's happening? And it has a lot to do with the isolation uh, and, and homeschooling and and, and perhaps even telehealth, although I do think telehealth has been helpful here. Yeah, um, so what we've been seeing is like, you were talking about increasing rates of anxiety and depression and things like that. And what we're also seeing not only in kids, but in adults is new onset psych issues. So like some people who have never experienced depression before developing it for the first time, developing anxiety. And then that was entering the pandemic just because I think we had a government where there was a lot of things that were going up and down all the time. We had no idea what was going on. And then people had to stay at home. What we need to think about too, when somebody has to stay at home is like, how is their home environment? Is it safe for them? Some people who were kids had to be home with people who were abusive and things like that. The other thing that happened is a lot of LGBTQ plus people had to maybe go back in the closet or they were at home where they weren't as safe. So they kind of lost their community. So that actually just thinking about how that plays out where you come out and your friends at school are all accepting and then you're immediately stuck back at home and your parents might not be as accepting, your family members who are like, your extra family members might not be as accepting. So is that even a safe place for you to be during a pandemic? Um, I think the other big thing is thinking about how we are kind of social creatures. Like I'm extremely introverted, but even I missed like going to dinners with friends and things like that. So how does that like kind of play out when somebody's stuck at home? So that's happening with adolescents. And so we need to think about how do we build a community for them? Like the Trevor Project has an online thing where you can actually like talk with other LGBTQ plus kids and it's monitored. So just trying to get access to the kids who need that right now and need that sense of community. And it's good that things are opening back up again too. 
Chase, what's the website for the Trevor Project? So that our, our yeah, not a problem. We um, actually have a slide of the Trevor Project that I think has their okay. website on it. But if you just Google the Trevor Project, T R E V O R Project, it's uh, Julia. It's the one with the blue um, circle graph and the bar graph. Um, so th this is a survey from this year. So they do a, a national survey of um, LGBTQ mental health every year. And the 2021 survey was really quite shocking. 42% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered attempting suicide. And this was over 50% in transgender and non-binary youth. Um, there's certainly a racial construct to this that we see with everything. Um, as Chase was saying, only one in three of these children found their home to be affirming of who they are, which is really horrible when you're stuck in that home 24-7. 70% um, reported that their mental health was poor most or all of the time. 13% were subjected to conversion therapy, and I'm going to ask you guys about what that is. And then um, we had talked about pronouns. I think Radhika brought up a really good uh, subject. When pronouns were actually respected by members of their family, their um, rates of suicidal ideation were cut in half. So, I mean, you know, we, all we want is R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? I don't think anybody's asking for more than just some respect. Um, but perhaps, um, Reardon, you can talk as a pediatrician about how we identify um, these problems because often they're identified, you know, by the school or the school nurse um, as, you know, the grades are dropping or they're misbehaving in class, but that didn't happen this year. And then how can we help these kids, you know, get past uh, what's going on with them? Yeah, it's been quite the challenge because, as Chase said, uh, with virtual schooling, a lot of kids have been at home and with their families and it's you don't have as many sort of external people to sort of clue in to, you know, some of these um, sort of like concerns, essentially. And so from a pediatrician standpoint, just trying to really emphasize those whenever I'm talking with, with my adolescents and making sure I'm talking to them one on one, whether or not it's virtual through virtual health or in person, and really just trying to to normalize all these feelings because it is a tumultuous time and it's been a tumultuous time, sort of all this change and up and down. And so just kind of like sort of giving them that place, that space just to be okay with those feelings so that they know that I'm there for them. And also I can help guide them to any resources that I have available as a pediatrician, like resources like my lovely colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, this is a problem around the world, right? So a lot of people, um, we, have, we have an audience from around the world. Thank you all so much for watching and for commenting. We have people watching from Kuwait and Ottawa. We have somebody watching from Finland. We have people watching from India. And certainly we have people watching from all over the United States. But a lot of people think that this is a Western world problem. Right, a lot of problem. I'm going to put that in air quotes. Um, 
because they think that this is, as we were talking earlier, some sort of a choice as opposed to an affirmation of who you are or who the person is. Um, and the uh, UNICEF, the United Nations International Children's Fund, um, looks at all sorts of issues and came up with this infographic from Southeast Asia that I thought was really interesting. So um, this is adolescents in South and Southeast Asia uh, who are LGBTQ, and it's the same thing. They're worried about being uh, isolated from their peers. They're worried about doing well in school. They're worried about their mental health. So this is really not a problem that, or an, or an issue or a concern that is in only one part of the world. This is a pro. This is a an issue that we need to come to grips with as societies, um, so that in fact we can support everyone. And I wonder, Michael, if you have some thoughts about this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing that came to mind for me um, was just that being LGBTQ or, or just to put it under an umbrella to say queerness, um, queerness itself spans all of humanity. It, it has nothing to do with any singular culture. Um, certain cultures have had their own way to express different identities. Um, like two-spirit identity for gender identity, traditionally Native American, for example. Um, but across the world, these identities have come up and been around for unknown amounts of time. Um, so being having a, a sexuality and a gender is just part of the human experience. Um, so we see all of these, um, right, again, the air quotes, problems, that come up with societies and, and whether they accept certain parts of the LGBTQ community um, versus others. And, and it really is a universal issue. Um, like I said, there's no trend, there's no cultural trend where like, oh, it's um, people are becoming gay or becoming transgender. No, we, we were all born this way, truly. You know, um, and, and Radhika brought up a good point, you know, throughout history and many different set civilizations, there is a non-binary gender concept. And um, so it's not at all about it's not, not becoming anything. So you just got props. Go ahead. Look, I got props. I, I got know. props. What's happening here? Look at this. This is um, a representation of Lord Shiva in Hinduism as Ardhanarishwara. So on the left side, they are represented as soft and feminine. And on the right side, they are represented with the muscular and physical attributes of a man. And this is very normal in a, a culture like in Hinduism. Um, you know, this concept that we have all of these gender norms or all of these attributes within each of us is something that is so normal in Hinduism and ancient Egypt. It's strange to me that it is not considered. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.
normal and part of who we are in the Western world. But yes, Marina said, I always have props. And she's this not, is actually you guys have one no of idea. my favorite representations of Shiva. So yeah. we got if to show it off. If you go through any of our archives, which by the way, you can see on YouTube, or if you want to, she all of a sudden will pull out an ear. We're talking about this, or the brain, the back of the skull. This is elderly surgery. I'm like, how do you have this so confusing but let's go back um let's go a little bit so you know what what can we do about um these in, in the lgbtq plus community and and about trying to get the word out you, you guys have spoken to it a little bit reardon um you actually were seeing seeing kids in and and how how can we further address it. I mean, sending people to a website is not enough. And obviously having you guys, um, you know, be the change you want to see, right? And you guys are certainly living that. And, and I love, Chase, that you said that people, the kids were like, hey, you are gay, you're a doctor, you're doing this. And, and that was very affirming for them, knowing that it's possible to, to, to be what you want to be. Um, but Reardon, I mean, with with kids, how have, have you seen any changes? What is the pediatric society saying? Like, are, is there a specific guidance? Because, you know, many times, and especially with HIV, I was an AIDS instructor for uh, the community and also in med school, we were doing classes. I trained to do that back in 1986. So, you know, um, when I was a medical student and, and I just want to know, like at the time we were doing it on the fly, but at this point, um, there's actual guidance on many different levels from, you know, the AMA and how to, how to uh, approach with sensitivity, et cetera. And I'm sure in, in PEDS as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics is extremely affirming and you, and it's been very uplifting to sort of the, our, our journal is pediatrics and looking at all of the LGBTQ articles out there, just as, you know, as a, community of pediatricians we're all serving and striving to do better by our lgbtq patients and so in terms of i'm going to pivot and sort of say in terms of way that as pediatricians we all try to do better is sort of you can certainly have those little visual symbols so if you're in a clinic you have maybe some rainbows um, as well as a, in terms of abilities to have pronouns different than the ones in the EMR. That's also, as well as names, than the, the EMR, which can also, from a technology standpoint, be a little bit challenging, but that's something that we continue to work on, as well as some people do have pins where they have their pronouns on them. Sometimes that can sort of just be somewhat of a symbol of saying like, hey, this is someone who at least understands what pronouns are, and maybe someone who's willing to talk about them. But it's also having to do with our language. Um, in in PEDS, we have for our adolescents, we sort of want to have our one-on-one -on -one conversations and we talk about things. And it used to be that you ask them like, oh, hey, do you have a boyfriend or a girl? Or like, actually, we didn't even say girlfriend. If you had, for instance, a female uh, adolescent, you just ask, hey, do you have a boyfriend or do you have any crushes on any guys? And that's the way that we just kind of put it out there. And that effectively closes the door on any anything any other sort of thoughts or crushes or anything like that. So we've definitely gotten a lot better about just being more open with our language to sort of just not close that door before we even had a chance to open it. 
I, I think that's so important, right? Check your biases right away. Check your biases before your mouth opens. Uh, we have people watching, as I said, from all over. Uh, Sumana is watching from White Plains. She says, happy pride. Um, we have um, people watching from Ottawa, happy pride. Uh, Karen Mojica Alvarez is a ENT surgeon. She's watching from Nicaragua. Two of our former guests, Marina, have chimed in. Dr. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez uh, from San Antonio, Dr. Camille Clare, who is uh, head of OBGYN at Monty. Um, so thank you guys for watching. Thank you for chiming in. Um, Reardon, there is a process to transitioning to affirming the gender that you know you were meant to be. So can you talk us through what that process is, how it's done? I know people are doing it um, you know, earlier. And again, we showed that people know who they are very early in life. So can you talk us through that process? Yeah, sure. I can talk sort of globally or, or broadly, because honestly, for every trans person, every non-binary person transition is going to look like very different things. Not everyone's going to want, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. Um, everyone is just on a journey of their own and is going to figure out things that work for them. But kind of like globally, you can break it down into kind of like three different parts of transition. You have social transitioning, which may look like wearing different clothes than what you previously did or using a different name things like that, different pronouns. There's medical transitioning, which involves the use of sort of gender affirming hormones, hormones different than the ones that you were born with to kind of help develop the physical features of your affirmed gender. And then there's surgical transitions as well. Again, to have surgeries that may also help alleviate some of the physical features of, again, the sex that you were born with and the features that you were born with. And so some people do all three, some people do two, some people do one. And it's just, it just depends on the person, whatever helps them feel affirmed in their gender. So really it's no set path for, for all people. Just, it's not a single line, I should say. It's just kind of a, a little map of stars and you can go on your journey however it works for that person. That's that's the beauty of it, right? It is it is a, a journey. And um, we saw a statistic that said that 75% of uh, trans people do not actually go forward with surgery. Just having the hormones are, are enough to help with that gender dysphoria. So as you were saying, Reardon, that, that journey can be you know, just varying. It's not always a direct to surgery and changing everything. Right. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, there are other things that, that we talk about, like um, there's a study that uh, McKinsey looked at and it's, that it's how hard it is to come out when you're young, like at your workplace, uh, or if you're a woman coming out and uh, L they said that 50% of LGBTQ people reported that they had to keep coming out at work at least once a week, which is really exhausting, right? So what is some of the advice that you can give to people uh, who are in the audience or and listening to us or people that they know, how can they be allies in this? And, and does that happen to you guys, right? Like, you know, when you go out or you find someone's interested in you and you're like, yeah, well, not, you know, 
you have to let people know, right? It's not, at that point, it's not like coming out, it's just letting them know who you are. So maybe Michael, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times in media and um, on television, movies, everything, it, it appears that coming out is a singular process. One day you're in the closet and the next day you're out, but it never ends, um, it's constant. Um, come out to your family, come out to your coworkers. Every time you meet a new person and they ask if you're married and have children or um, questions like that. I mean, it just comes up in life and it should be normalized and normalize everyone having the, the partner that they love or the gender identity that makes them happy. Um, but unfortunately that's just not how it is and not how we're, we're seen as being um, separate from the standard often. Um, so coming out happens in different ways every day. Yeah, and I think that that statistic of having to keep coming out, like this was just a regular workplace, not a healthcare workplace, where in fact, we have to explain ourselves to our patients, you know, on a daily minute by minute basis. But in a regular workplace with a closed set of uh, people to have to keep coming out is just, you know, ridiculous. Uh, somebody on Twitter this week was like, oh, a patient said to me, oh, they have this beautiful granddaughter that I should go out with. And I said to them, no, I, well, it turns out I'm gay. And they said, oh, then I have a beautiful grandson that you should go out with. So it's sort of like she had a smorgasbord of grandchildren available to meet up with the doctor, which I thought was kind of cute. Um, we want to thank you so much for coming on board and sharing so much wisdom with us. I will do a clarification. Dr. Claire is at SUNY Downstate. So thank you for watching, Dr. Claire, and thank you for correcting me. Um, we would like to ask you to leave our audience and us uh, with three takeaways each. And uh, maybe we'll start with you, Chase. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you again for having us on. And then I think my takeaways is the first one would be just listen. When somebody shares their story with you, that's a gift. So take a moment and just let them share their story how they want to. The second thing is to be that ally that you really want to be and that we need you to be. So that means like speaking up in the room when that LGBTQ person is speaking up on their, by themselves. Just you being there and saying like, I'm here with you means so much to us. And I think the third thing is, is, we respect you, so respect us um, is the last thing. That's beautiful. Thank you. Michael? Um, I think the biggest thing that I really want to drive home is that as we expand um, the number of identities that we're aware of in the LGBTQ community and you learn more about each one, it's not that uh, a new identity has been created. It's just a word has been made that describes people who have always existed for years and years and years. So when you're learning about new people, um, meeting new people, just have that in the back of your mind. No one ever has the, the full breadth of knowledge of LGBTQ because we're always expanding and always becoming more inclusive. Um, second point, a little more closer to, to child and adolescent health, um, you referenced the Trevor Project a lot, and they're phenomenal. Um, having even one adult in a child's life who is affirming of their um, gender or sexual identity um, decreases the risk of suicidality by 40%. And that can be a pediatrician, it can be a psychiatrist, it can be a teacher, it can be a parent, 
anyone, just with one affirming adult. Um, and then the third thing I wanted to just kind of drive home um, is there's a lot of talk about expanding the vaccine to adolescents, which has happened recently. And you talked about how things are here are mostly going in the right direction um, in the United States. Um, but if you have questions about that, the, the person to ask is your trusted pediatrician or your child's um, family medicine doctor or practitioner and, and just sit down with them and have a conversation. Reardon, thank you so much, Michael. That also was just amazing. And we had a comment to, to be an ally and also being an upstander rather than a bystander. I think that's really great. Reardon, what are your three takeaways? So first off, pronouns are like fingerprints. We all got them. I mean, this isn't something that's newly happening. It's just people are sort of being more open about it. And so we should support them and support them by doing our very best to respect those pronouns. Because again, fingerprints, we all got them. Um, the second is, you know, being mindful of your bias. Think about your questions. If you are someone who's taking care of patients or even just in general, just being mindful instead of you know, asking uh, like someone, like, do you like, oh, what's your wife do? And just assume that they have a wife or what's your husband do? Just sort of think about that. Oh, uh, as you wear a wedding ring, like what's your spouse do or what's your partner do and things like that. And then just finishing up by saying that adolescents, they, you know, they don't, they don't need you necessarily to like, throw a huge pride party for them when they come out or like make, you know, bang on the drums and like, oh my gosh, all that. They just really just need you to respect them. They need you to love them and just sort of listen, like Chase was saying, and just care for them. And then honestly, like that support will do wonders for them. And also for, I feel like the entire like unit, entire group. So that's what Thank I have to say. Thank you guys. This is really great. You want to Sadly, we are coming to a close of our show. We want to thank our corporate sponsor, ENT and Allergy Associates. Over 40 offices in New York City, Long Island, Westchester, New Jersey. You can go on their website to schedule and often get a same-day appointment. I love their offices. So, and I'm, I'm not biased because, you know, not because the <laughs> works there. Next week, we celebrate our one-year anniversary, uh, Suju. So if you want to just talk about that show. Yeah, and you know, you're never fully dressed without a smile. So we have uh, two dentists uh, coming on who are leaders at the American Dental Association, Dr. Maria Maranga and Dr. Matt Messina. And they will talk to us about dental health care and uh, which is part of physical health care. So thank you guys for watching. Happy Pride. This is a great show, Marina. Thank yeah, you so, so much. Thank this you, our wonderful. guests and our viewers. Bye. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. 
best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.